Hello and welcome to BioPod, the official podcast for the School of Biological Sciences here at the University of Edinburgh. Have you ever wondered what a fulfilled scientific life is like? I mean, not just submitting your thesis or finding an academic job, but a life until you are old and grey and full of sleep, a life full of dreams, failure, success, fame, and seemingly insipid mundane tasks. In this episode, my colleague Sam will talk to Professor Jim Becks. Who is retiring from the Wellcome Trust Centre for Cell Biology and the University of Edinburgh? This is a journey down her memory lane, which encompasses her motivation in science, the ups and downs throughout her career, and the transitions from being a PhD student to an independent researcher, as to start a new lab as a PI and finally get the professorship. In the end. Our lovely Verity will tell you another story of a lifelong romance with science. Stay tuned. For now, over to you, Sam. Hello, dear listeners. Today, I'm sitting down with the lovely Professor Jean Banks, and we'll be talking about her career in academia and her love of science. Hello, Sam. It's a pleasure to talk to you. Thanks for inviting me. So let's get started. Could you describe your research interests in a couple of sentences? Yes, I'm in general interested in understanding how genes are expressed. I mean, everyone knows approximately what a gene is. Genes code for proteins. I'm interested in the mechanism that determines how they're expressed, and also how the expression is regulated. So, how long have you been researching into these topics, and、um, where have you been researching them? So, I started my my studies doing a PhD at the University of Glasgow in 1971. And there, I studied the metabolism of aromatic compounds in the soil bacterium, and I learned a lot about the regulation of protein production in bacterial cells at that time. Then I moved to Edinburgh as a postdoc, and it was at the beginning of the recombinant DNA era when people were first learning how to clone genes and to study the structure of genes and the sequences that affect their expression. So that's when I became really interested in gene expression as such. After that, I went on to develop a method for the efficient transformation of yeast, so that yeast could be used as a host in which to clone genes. What is meant by transforming yeast? So, in this case, it means getting the yeast cells to take up DNA, DNA that's that's、um, from outside, ex- exogenous DNA, and this could be either yeast DNA or DNA from another organism. And to express that DNA, to express a gene or genes in the DNA. So that the phenotype of the cells is changed, so the properties of the cells would change as a result of expressing this DNA, and this could mean complementing a mutation in the yeast genome, for example, a mutation that affects the production of an essential amino acid, and then you can test for that change in the yeast cells, or alternatively, it could be introducing into the yeast cell a resistance to an antifungal agent, and that can then be tested for. So it's a way in which the cells change, and you can identify. That they've taken up the DNA. So to this day, that paper remains one of your most cited papers. Why was it so influential? Well, as I said, prior to this, we could clone genes in bacterial cells. So most of the work was done by cloning in Escherichia coli, more commonly known as E. coli. And so we knew a lot about the expression of genes in bacterial cells. But this was the first eukaryotic gene cloning system, and allowed us to study 
to isolate and study eukaryotic genes. And this greatly facilitated studies in, in particular of yeast gene expression and of mutations in yeast that affect the cell's metabolism. Until this point, as I said, most of the work had been done in bacteria, but now we could learn what are the differences between gene expression in a eukaryotic cell and a bacterial cell. And I worked with a budding yeast called Saccharomyces cerevisiae, which after this became a very important model organism for studying gene expression. So after releasing such an influential paper, did you feel much pressure about having to follow that up with something just as impactful? There definitely was pressure, and in particular at that time I was working on my own. I didn't have my own lab yet, but soon after that I I took up a position as lecturer at Imperial College in London and started my own lab. And there, after that, we were able to do more experiments than I could have done by myself. But you're right that once someone has achieved something, there is an expectation that they'll continue to achieve. And of course, this puts a feeling of pressure on you. And this is the basis of imposter syndrome, isn't it? That I think most people suffer from imposter syndrome at some level. And you have to try to have faith in yourself and to do what seems right and, and learn from mistakes that you and others make. And it's also important to seek advice and it helps to share experiences with other people. And the majority of your research now is more into what's called RNA splicing. Could you explain a little bit about what splicing is? So it's well known that DNA contains coding information that directs the production of proteins. The sequence in the chemical bases in DNA is a code that determines the sequence of amino acids in a protein. And the DNA sequence that encodes the protein is called a gene. In 1977, it was reported that in some genes, the coding sequence is interrupted by non-coding sequence called introns. This is like reading a text in a book, for example, and the words suddenly don't make sense. But then after a stretch of what seems like nonsense, the words start again. If the nonsense is cut out and the flanking bits of text are joined together, then it makes sense. In eukaryotic organisms, many genes contain these introns that disrupt the coding sequence. When the gene is transcribed to make an RNA copy, the RNA copy contains the introns also. But then there's a process of cutting out the introns from the RNA and joining the bits of coding information together, and that's called RNA splicing. So it's really an important step in gene expression. The process takes place in a large macromolecular complex called a spliceosome. That literally means splicing body that's made up of a lot of RNAs and proteins in a very complex structure that we are now only now really understanding. So how did you come to be interested in the spliceosome specifically? Well, RNA is literally at the centre of gene expression. It's an essential step. And I had hoped that yeast cells could be hosts for cloning genes from other eukaryotes. And when we discovered that many eukaryotic genes contain an intron, I wanted to find out whether yeast was able to splice introns. And we didn't know at that time whether any yeast genes contained an intron. And so I decided to try to express a gene from another eukaryote that contained an intron in yeast to find out what would happen. That's how I became interested in RNA splicing. We found that Introns from non-yeast eukaryotes were generally not spliced properly in the yeast cell, and that's because the specificity of the determinants that, that define an intron and differ slightly from one organism to another, although the actual mechanism of RNA splicing is the same in all eukaryotes. So it's important to understand how this mechanism works, 
and to understand the differences from one organism to another, and also to understand what goes wrong in diseased cells. Because many people um, have, have disorders, that uh, genetic disorders, that cause a defect in RNA splicing, and this then affects the, the ability for the normal protein to be made. So there are a lot of studies now going on to understand how genetic mutations in humans cause disease by causing defects in RNA splicing and potentially to find a way of, of curing this or, or um, overcoming this problem. There's another phenomenon called alternative splicing, which means that when the RNA is cut and joined together, it might do this in more than one way so that different sequences get joined together to, to, to code for slightly different proteins. This is called alternative splicing, where usually if there are several introns, the coding sequences might be joined in a different way. And this is really important in complex organisms such as mammals that are multicellular, multi, multi-limb organisms. You have different tissues in which the splicing takes place in different ways as a result of this alternative splicing method. And it's important, I don't study this myself, but there's a lot of work going on to try to understand this. And again, how this is affected in development, in the development of an embryo and the development of of an organism, to understand how it's regulated to give different splicing patterns in different tissues. As you were referring to previously, um, that idea of RNA splicing and the spliceosome is pretty universal across eukaryotes and prokaryotes as well. There are different mechanisms of splicing in prokaryotes. It's not quite the same. The, the spliceosome doesn't exist in prokaryotes. It's, it's uh, unique to eukaryotes. And why did you specifically work on yeast? Well, first of all, in, when you're deciding to try to develop a eukaryotic cloning system, you need to have something, uh, a form of DNA that will amplicate up to high copy number to amplify the piece of DNA that you're cloning. And so I started working with yeast because it has a plasmid that replicates up to high copy number. And so this is an obvious choice. And then I continue to work with yeast because yeast is very amenable to both biochemical and genetic studies. As I said, it's, it's become a model organism. So it's a wonderful system with which to work. It can be grown easily in the laboratory and cheaply. It's safe to work with this particular yeast, Saccharomyces cerevisiae. And many of the processes in yeast cells, in the metabolism of a yeast cell, are conserved from yeast to humans, and so we can learn a lot by studying yeast. So now your research lab has become renowned for your research into RNA splicing. Was that your original topic of interest back when you were doing your PhD? Well, I was interested in um, metabolic regulation in in the bacterial cells that I worked with then. RNA splicing was unheard of at that time. So this was a, a discovery, as I said, in 1977, and so my interest changed after that. But did you always imagine a a career in academia? Oh, no, not at all. Um, I came from a family where no one had previously been to university, and so I had no idea what an academic career involved. And so it was only at the end of my first degree when I was offered a studentship to stay on at the University of Glasgow to study for a PhD that I considered it. I loved science and I was enjoying doing experiments, so it seemed like an obvious thing to do. It's not what I recommend now to students to stay on to do a PhD where they've done their first degree. I do recommend that they go out and and, um, see more of the world and get wider experience. But at the time, that was an easy thing for me to do. And I didn't suffer from it. I I had a very good training there. It's very important to choose somewhere to study for your PhD where you'll get a good training. And so after your PhD, you transitioned into doing some postdocs. 
Um, what was that transition like? Well, I was very lucky. I got the opportunity in coming to Edinburgh to join the laboratory of Ken Murray and Noreen Murray, Professor Ken, Sir Kenneth and Lady Noreen Murray, who had started cloning genes in bacteriophage lambda. And it was the first lab in the UK to do any gene cloning work. So it was the beginning of the recombinant DNA era. And so it was a wonderful opportunity for me to learn this fantastic new technology. And it was an extremely exciting time. And from there, I went on to develop the the yeast cloning system because I wanted to contribute to this um, revolution in gene cloning. And so I very quickly um, moved on and uh, I got a research fellowship that allowed me some independence. And and, uh, from Edinburgh, I moved to Cambridge, where I worked at the Plant Breeding Institute and I interacted with people studying plants. And that was interesting. And after that, I went to Imperial College and, and I really just taken opportunities as they arose and I didn't I can't say that I planned my career in any way I certainly didn't see myself as becoming a professor when I started my PhD. You, you referred to um, the idea of recombinant DNA could you just explain a little bit what that actually means? Oh recombinant in itself means that you're joining different things together and so recombinant DNA technology is literally joining pieces of DNA together that weren't previously joined together and so gene, and this is another word really for gene cloning, where you take a piece of DNA that you're interested in and you attach it to something that will amplify it, like a plasmid that will amplify it up to high copy number, so that you have a large amount of it that makes it easier to study and, and, and to isolate an individual gene. So when a plasmid takes a piece of DNA into a cell, you have cloned it, you've separated it from other fragments that it might have been mixed with and that cell then amplifies that one piece of DNA. So you have isolated it, amplified it, and that's what cloning means and that's really what recombinant DNA is all about. And so after your uh, postdocs you became PI of your own lab. What was that transition like and do you have any advice for early stage career researchers? I think it's a very difficult transition from being a postdoc to being a PI. You have to learn many new skills because as a postdoc, you are mainly doing experiments. You're in the lab all the time, apart from when you do some reading and writing. But as a PI, you're head of a lab. You have to bring funding into the lab to pay for experiments and to pay the salaries of people. You have to write papers, make sure that you get publications And you have to learn project management, you have to learn personnel management. As I said, scientific writing skills, grantsmanship, most people have to learn to teach. And you have to plan and manage budgets, there's a great deal to learn. And I would recommend that people try mainly to learn from others and to share experiences with others. Take courses that might be available, career development, grantsmanship. Seek a mentor, someone that you respect and who has the kind of experience that you need to learn. And get involved with something called grant pitches. So some departments in universities do this, where people come together to listen to someone's ideas that they want to write up for a grant application and to get feedback on that before they actually go ahead and and write for for a a funding application. So all these things are important. But in particular, it's very helpful if you can share experiences with someone else at your stage or someone perhaps just a little more senior than yourself that you can feel free to talk to about the problems that you're having and to share your experiences. I think not from personal experience, because I haven't quite got to the stage of being a PI myself, um, but the B 
biggest skill that people might not necessarily be prepared for is the managerial um, role that you become as a PI. Um, do you have any advice for building a good team and, and, and managing a good team? And did you have your own mentor for that? No, I didn't have a mentor for that. And that's something that I've always um, found. It was a continuous learning process because everyone who comes into your lab is different. And most people end up with, with a group of people who, who all have different um, characters and you have to learn to cope with each one of those. So I would try, if possible, to select people to join your group who you think you can get on with and interact well with, but maybe you don't have a great deal of choice in that. You'll choose someone who has good skills and who's interested in coming to join your research group. But good communication is crucial. Misunderstandings often arise through poor communication, and so you have to look out for this and try to sort out problems early. Mentor young people, help them to build confidence in themselves and to become independent in due course. It's important, of course, to help people at an early step, but also to encourage them to, to become gradually more independent. And for the science, it's really important to stay focused and, and not become distracted by novelties, things that you find that you weren't expecting. Some, sometimes, of course, that's really important. You have to keep your eyes open for the unexpected. But do try to stay focused and look out for opportunities to collaborate. I think collaboration is very important especially a collaboration where your expertise complements that of your collaborator so that you are more effective in working together. It's really important. Thank you very much for that advice. I think the final step, um, is there any major transitions between being a PI and then getting a professorship and the responsibilities that may come with that? I think professorship is something that comes with increased seniority and increased success. Um, you have to show that you're good all-round person in terms of your research productivity, your ability to manage a group, get in funding, publish and to teach. So it's really just a progression, trying to improve your CV until you're appreciated enough to be <laughs> to, to justify um, being a professor. And have there been any major obstacles that you've faced in your own transitions through these stages? Well, Life's full of problems, of course, and so is a career. And, and, and in academic research, there are many things that have to be dealt with. Getting a good work-life balance is important. Uh, for many couples, relocating can be difficult, finding two jobs together. And of course, I've experienced that with my husband. We've been married since I was a PhD student. Classic two-body problem. Absolutely. And of course, sometimes one person may have to give priority to the other person. So there has to be some give and take. But then I think that one person may be able to take a risk. So I took some risks. My husband had a, was, was a doctor and had a stable profession, and I took some risks in my scientific career. So I think I, you know, I was fortunate in that respect. And of course, um, having a family is, is a challenge for a woman to combine that with having a career. In my case, I have two sons, and I didn't take much maternity leave, but that was really my choice. I already had uh, a laboratory to run, and so I I felt I couldn't neglect it for long, and so it's a it, it's a bit of a balancing act, keeping things going, the lab going in the background while you're bringing up a small baby. But different people find their own way of dealing with it. There are many different ways of dealing with that. Over my entire career, probably the biggest problem that I had was when I had a PhD student who fabricated results, and this was ghastly. This was a really horrible experience. Um, and um, I must say I came closest to giving up at that point because you lose faith in people. There has to be 
trust in people in science. And uh, if you lose faith in other people, then that's devastating. But we got through it. Um, the lab pulled together and, uh, and we got through it. But I know that other people have also found this a big problem. And it's really important if this happens to face up to it and to get help to deal with it. You shouldn't try to deal with it on your own. So now you've made the decision to close your lab. What do you see as your role in academia now? Well, there are other things in life, of course. So I, I want to have time to do things I haven't had time to do in the past. Spend more time with my husband, with my family. I now have a grandson. I have dogs. Um, I want to enjoy activities I didn't have time for before. So closing my lab was quite a difficult decision. But once it was made, I was very happy with it. And then I, I realise now I'm still very busy and I was probably doing too much before. I'm involved with committees and I'm trustee of some organisations. So I, I serve in committees at national level. So now I, I'm able to offer advice and help to others in making decisions on science-related matters. And that keeps me thinking about science and scientific activities and keeps me pretty busy. So throughout your career, have you seen any major changes in how research is conducted? There have been huge changes. When I started out in research, experiments were much more difficult to do than they are now. We didn't have the technology that we have now. We didn't have the availability of reagents. We certainly couldn't get very much in the way of um, molecular biology reagents commercially. We had to produce a lot of things ourselves. So science happened more slowly, but there were more things to discover. It was a really exciting time. So now, of course, um, things have developed much more high-tech um, methodology in labs, there's availability of commercial resources, and um, some con- to some extent there's a concern that students sometimes don't even know what's in their so-called kits that they do experiments with. They don't have the same basic knowledge of why things work as they do. But now they can do much more, and scientific discoveries tend to, um, to be limited by available technologies, so now you, you can learn much more more quickly. And one of the big changes, of course, is um, the production of large data sets, which is um, a big change over the last 10 years, I would say. So in terms of um, how you deal with that, I think graduates now need different skills than they had before. Science is much more interdisciplinary. So I started out studying biochemistry. Then I had to learn genetics, microbiology, and and a bit of bioinformatics. Um, And and of course, there's always some chemistry in the background. Now, in order to deal with huge data sets, data analysis is is becoming the rate-limiting step. And so the ability to do bioinformatic analysis, mathematical modelling, and to have good statistical skills is very important, and, and also to collaborate with people who are experts in these areas. To end us off, do you have a memorable anecdote? Well, there have been a few mishaps, of course, um, not all funny, but there was one occasion when I was doing an important experiment and I wanted to make sure that I was working at a clean bench. And we had, this was in the 1970s, we had old-fashioned wooden benches and I, I liberally swabbed my bench with alcohol to sterilise it and then I put down bench coat, which is shiny on one side, which I put the shiny side up and then I swabbed that with alcohol. Then I started to spread cells on agar plates in in petri dishes, which involves using a glass rod that's dipped in ethanol and then flamed to sterilise it. And I I think what must have happened is a drop of burning ethanol must have come off the glass rod onto my bench and suddenly my entire bench went up in flames. (laughs) (laughs) And um, all the bench coat, of course, had to burn off, first of all, and then it, it died down. So I was 
able to stand back and watch it. And my bench was then thoroughly sterilised for my experiment. <laughs> and in those days, we didn't have uh, smoke detectors, so not very many people knew about it. Um, but um, there are good reasons for the health and safety regulations that we have <laughs> nowadays in labs. My gosh. Did, did you did the experiment go on? Oh, yes, of course. <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, wow. Nothing was damaged. <laughs> <laughs> That's crazy. I had um, another story about having um, a project overnight or something. I was running a protein gradient gel, purifying a protein on a column and using a gradient maker to make the gradient buffer. And it was an old-fashioned, very uh, simple rudimentary column with tubes joining two cylinders of liquid together, dripping into a column and then fraction collector below the column to collect the samples. This was in the cold room. So I set this up and left it running overnight because these things take many hours to run. The next morning when I came in, the fraction collector had burned. Everything was dried and burned. And this was because the the gradient maker had leaked and the buffer had dripped onto uh, a power socket, which in those days weren't waterproof protected, and started a fire and burnt the the fraction collector. So another good reason for having health and safety regulations. (laughs) <clears throat> that wasn't so funny. <laughs> no, I bet people realised that time. <laughs> well, thank you very much for your time and uh, for your stories. Um, and thank you very much, listeners, for tuning in. Um, and I hope you've learned something new. And now for another giant of genetics who has spent much of their career at Edinburgh University, Professor Bill Hill. Bill Hill grew up in Hertfordshire in southern England in the 1940s and 50s and studied agriculture at Wye College in Kent. From there, he received a master's in genetics at the University of California before moving to Edinburgh to begin his PhD in population genetics in 1963. It was his early childhood on a farm that made him interested in how animals vary and how those traits could be manipulated to improve livestock quality. His work focuses on the variability in the complex traits shown in living organisms, and in how genetic and environmental factors combine to lead to many different phenotypes. It's mostly theoretical, and he uses mathematical models to explore these questions. Bill's impact on how we think about inheritance of traits between generations began with his PhD thesis, simply called Studies on Artificial Selection. He studied the impact of linkage in small populations, and how it limits artificial selection. Linkage is the process where multiple loci, or the DNA at a specific position on a genome, are inherited together, and it makes it more complicated for selection, natural or artificial, to act on the subsequent benefits or costs those genes cause. Specifically, using modelling, Bill showed that if loci are tightly linked together, it is much harder for one of them to reach fixation, where every organism in a population carries that allele. In other words, how much can we actually hope to achieve breeding specific animals together to get better agricultural yields, when their genes are likely to be inherited together? Specifically, we may be looking at an allele which causes cows to produce more milk, And so we would want that allele to be fixed in the population so that every cow carries it and produces more milk. However, Bill's thesis showed that if it is tightly linked to another gene, that is unlikely to happen. This is a really important part of implied science, as artificial selection is the basis for our entire system of food production for the last 12,000 years or so, so understanding how the genetics behind it works is key. The selection at one locus affecting selection at another linked locus is the basis of the Hill-Robertson effect, a highly influential idea in population genetics. Bill continued to work in quantitative genetics after his PhD, providing a framework for modelling and and analysing so-called linkage disequilibrium. More recently, his work has gained a new relevance as genomic sequencing has become more common. 
His work has helped to explain patterns of molecular evolution we observe in genomes, as well as ask what genome-scale datasets can help us to understand about complex traits and relatedness. But Professor Bill Hill is not only important for his research. He is also a committed and passionate mentor to many generations of scientists and has taught at the University of Edinburgh since completing his PhD in 1965. Those who have met and worked with him professionally describe many friendly and helpful interactions providing support in how to develop their work. In the words of one of his colleagues, he has the uncanny knack of pushing his students to realms of genetics and statistics they would never have imagined or reached otherwise. One piece of advice he gave a student was to each day work on the thing that is of most interest to you, reminding us that research is about exploring things that are exciting to us, however many years we've been doing it. He was recently awarded the Mendel Medal for his contributions to genetics, and in the words of one of his collaborators and mentees, it is very fitting that William G. Hill is receiving the Mendel Medal in recognition of his formidable contributions to quantitative genetics, animal breeding, and science in general. Continuing this legacy, Bill contributes to the department well past his retirement date, further enriching the academic life of the School of Biological Sciences. You've been listening to Biopod, the podcast from the School of Biological Sciences at the University of Edinburgh. Catch us on Twitter, at Biopod Edinburgh. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye.